Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. It's a great time to be together in the Word. Thank you for being here with us. If you're a guest here, before you leave, make sure you let us know you were here. If you've got questions, that we can minister to you in some way. That QR code right on the back of the seat will connect you to us. Please um, let us know how we can bless you and be a ministry to you. If you want to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to continue verse-by-verse study. Last week we took a break and had a really wonderful time dedicating children to the Lord. I think we had about 10 little ones up here and parents who desire to help their children walk with the Lord and covenanted with you and with the Lord to raise them in the way that He's instructed. So it was a great time of encouragement. We're back to though in our verse-by-verse teaching. Guidelines for public worship, which is the two pastoral epistles and, and Titus as well. And it's our new section today, the source of all false teaching. So let's open our Bibles and look at First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. We'll read all the way down through verse 5. We're going to introduce this, lay some groundwork for our new section. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth, verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, verse 5. For it is sanctified by means of the word and of prayer. If you would imagine yourself in a room that walls are, are really papered bright green, you walk into an adjoining room and where the walls are green, but the shade is just imperceptibly bluer than the one before. You enter a third room, bluer than the second again. The difference is too small to really be noticeable, but after passing through 50 rooms, each slightly bluer than the one before, someone hands you a sample of the wallpaper in the room where you started, and you're astonished by how green it is, and suddenly you realize that you're in a room that's not green, but it's blue. I think we can understand that. I think we've all had experiences that are similar to that. And something like that often happens when people slowly move away from instruction that's centered on doctrine. Doctrine, by the way, is the word for teaching in the Word of God. It's something we see often throughout the Word. Just subtle influences gradually edge someone away from pure belief to that which is ultimately not belief at all. The ability to discern truth from error then becomes the end result. And as we said before, the God of this world doesn't ultimately care what people believe as long as they don't know or believe the truth. So it doesn't really matter uh, what kind of error people slide into. It always has the same source. It's moving away from the Word of God, a clear teaching of doctrine, and or may, being gone from the teaching of the Word of God for long enough, things begin to change. Because once you move away from practical sanctification, which is the continuous study of the Word of God, putting what you learn into practice, you're becoming more like Christ the more you study the Word and you put that into practice. And you have replacements coming in, and those replacements will be in the form of legalism, which is doing or not doing some certain thing in order to appear righteous, or mysticism, which has found its latest manifestation in progressive Christianity, where the idea is we couldn't possibly know the mind of an infinite God, so the clear meaning of Scripture is thrown out. And the God that wants to be known, who's revealed mysteries, not hidden them, who gave us Jesus so we would have Colossians 
115, the image of the invisible God, as Jason read a little bit ago, the firstborn of all creation. It's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. He wants us to know all these things. He's revealed all these mysteries. Instead, you can't possibly know God, but you can feel Him and you can experience Him through meditation. That's what you get when you throw out doctrine which to a progressive is so sterile and one-dimensional and limited. Instead, spirituality has to come through contemplation. It comes through feelings. This is a direction people slip. And if not doctrine, then signs, of course. It's not true teaching. It's just all sorts of manifested miracles and, and gifts to affirm spirituality, speaking in tongues or a second work of the Spirit, or experiencing God somehow uh, in His powerful presence, coming down over people, creating all kinds of experiences and disorder and embarrassing foolishness, if you looked at any of those things that's been online lately. And although we're just barely touching the tip of the false teaching iceberg, as it were, uh, there is also the departure to asceticism. And that's severely treating yourself in self-discipline, avoidance of all forms of indulgence, excluding things from life like uh, in, in order to be holy, in order to be righteous, these things are, are all obviously connected, particularly in their desire to be close to God, but more ominously, they share the origin of all these false doctrines as they are all doctrines of demons. But the tragedy is that the departure to these other things is sometimes so imperceptible that they don't know that their belief system has changed. They've moved slowly through and all of a sudden they look around and everything is different. They've moved away from looking at Christ's work on their behalf as their only hope of salvation and godliness, which explains Paul's return to basics in the two verses just before these, where we finished last time. Of course, in the original, there's no chapter break, so Paul says then, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. It was revealed, it was hidden, now revealed. He who was revealed in the flesh. So the mystery of godliness is great. It's now revealed in Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up the glory. And then verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. See how that goes together? He has that basic foundation on which godliness is found. He says, but in the latter times, people will fall away from that. They'll move away from that simplicity and all that we saw there two weeks ago. And whenever Paul uses the word mystery, he always uses it to reference Christ, and he's going to present the work of Christ as the key to godliness. And that's just basic, isn't it? And he says it's by common confession. So in other words, everyone should know this. Everyone should be confessing this. This is the reality of life in Christ. They should know this, but, he says in verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from this knowledge. It should come easily to them. As a believer, this should be first on our lips. This is where holiness is found. And what is it that's going to, uh, the thing that's supposed to come easily to them? The mystery of godliness. But instead, what's become easily accessible to them is thinking that godliness comes through their denial of their appetites and through rules. And that's really what we're talking about here. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, we see it's not isolated just to Ephesus. In verse 18, Paul says to the church in Colossae, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels and taking his stand on visions he's seen, 
inflated without cause in his fleshly mind. So all these kinds of things that seem to experience God, they seem to be focusing on godliness, but they're not. All the things we just finished talking about, legalism and mysticism and progressivism and and visions and signs and asceticism. What should we be holding on to in order to be holy? Not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Instead, instead of holding on to those things, thinking we're achieving an experience with God, hold on to Christ himself. Verse 20 says, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle and do not taste and do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, mark this, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but of our no value against fleshly indulgence. All those other experiences, all those things you deny yourself, all of that have no power over fleshly indulgence. There's no way to be godly in that way. Now, just to be clear, and I want to make sure that we're clear here, we draw a line here, And we can see this is just obvious. Paul was never opposed to spiritual discipline for the purpose of godliness. That's not what we're talking about here in Colossians. In fact, in just a few paragraphs, we're going to see in 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline only is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Obviously then, reigning in your life, Uh, following the commandments and the instructions of the Word of God. That's what it means to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, to understand what the Word says and then begin to discipline yourself to do it. In 2 Timothy 2.15, very similar, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. Again, precisely the same way. If you want to walk through life and not be ashamed, rightly handle the Word of truth. Spend time in it, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness in the same effort that it takes to put yourself, get yourself in, in physical condition, which has but little benefit. Discipline yourself to get yourself in spiritual condition because that's going to lead to godliness. It's a promise for the present life, one to come. In Titus chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified. What's that mean? You're doing the right thing because you understand what the Bible says to do And purity of doctrine just means you're doing it in that clear conscience. Dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So, I evaluate my actions. 1 Timothy chapter 9, verse 23 says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So I evaluate my actions in the light of the gospel. And for the sake of the gospel. In other words, do my, does my life and do my actions line up with what the Word of God says I should be doing? This is something we talk about all the time here. Practical holiness. On a day-by-day basis, do I do my best to put to work what I understand that I read in the Word that day? It's very, very simple and basic to Christianity. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run... In a race, all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Lots of people running, not all all the people running like they should. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. In something that doesn't really matter, a temporary award of some kind, 
they compete in, su in such a way that they exercise self-control. They watch what they eat. They make sure they're on a training regimen. All those kinds of things in order to be first. Paul says in spiritual things, that's what you should do. They run to receive a perishable wreath, but we, he says, an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The flesh is always where we have the trouble, isn't it? That, those are where the strongholds are. That's the, un, that's the unglorified part of us at this point. So it's always that battle, but it's connected to what the Word of God says. Not in some way doing something that we think that'll achieve holiness for us. We hold on to the head, which is Christ. We have one hope. What's our one hope? Every day, do you tell the Lord, Lord, you are my one hope. Christ, in light of how I've lived my life and how I know myself more, the more I spend in the Word of God, the more I know that my only hope is clinging to you. You're my holiness. I don't have any holiness in my own self. And now I'm going to take time in the Word, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to apply it correctly so I don't walk in shame. I'm going to do such things. I'm, I'm going to run in such a way to win. I want to box in such a way that I'm connecting. I discipline my body and make it my slave. So after I preach to others, I myself may not be disqualified. And here it's just obvious that spiritual discipline sometimes involves restraint, and it involves sometimes no-nos. If the Lord says don't do it, then you don't. You don't have any freedom in your life to do anything that Christ said not to do. You do understand that, right? There's no freedom in your life to do anything Christ said not to do. There's no freedom to, to say anything that the Word of God says not to say. But asceticism is altogether different because it involves the intentional denial of things that God has declared to be good, thinking that can be the path to holiness and that can be the path to spirituality. And that's where Paul's focusing. And because it's right here, right after the hymn to the church, to remind them that their only hope in holiness is Christ... And it calls to, life, uh, to mind the birth and the life and the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That Paul looks at this as a direct attack on all of that. Because he says, great is the mystery of godliness found in a relationship with Christ alone. He who was, he says, revealed in the flesh, the incarnation coming to, coming to earth, the eternal one coming and living in a body, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. Each one's a snapshot of reality on which our holiness is secured. So in light of that, then he goes immediately to verse 1 of chapter 4, and in the ancient uh, manuscripts there's no chapter break. So he says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Let's look at those words, and these are important, and we're going to spend some time here, because if we understand this, we understand the foundation of all false teaching. We understand where all of this comes from. False teaching, uh, cults, everything that's connected to the denial of what Christ has done is based here. So he says, the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times. Now, we know that all prophecy is produced through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 tells us this. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. They stood in God's breath and received that instruction and gave it to people. So we can know for certain that this information contained in Paul's letter came from the Spirit. Then he uses the word explicitly, and that just means in clear words. It wasn't symbolic. It wasn't a metaphor. It was clearly stated. So number one, our first principle relating to false teaching and false teachers is that the Holy Spirit has warned us clearly 
And we're going to see numerous times that this is a problem that's going to dominate the future. It's always been a problem, but it's going to be a real problem for the church, which is why we see it so often in the New Testament. And the Spirit explicitly says, just seems to be referring to what Jesus has already said earlier. In fact, if you look in the book of Revelation, particularly in in chapters 2 and 3, and the numerous occurrences of the Spirit says, it's always referring to what Jesus has said. So it's the Spirit of the risen Christ, and we read through His message to the churches. And not only that, but the Gospels reveal that Jesus made earlier statements very much like we have here in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24 verse 10. At that time, many will fall away, He says. As He's talking about Matthew 24, of course, talking about end times. The whole chapter is a wonderful thing to read. It helps you understand uh, what the end times is supposed to look like and will look like. But at that time, many will fall away, he says, and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise, mark it, and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. False prophets will come and they will mislead people. That's that deception. You don't realize you've been deceived, but you are deceived. See, they're misled. Peter's carried along to say it in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3 and 4. He says, know this, first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Not only are they mockers, but they're mocking the church, and, and, they, and they're also caught up in, in their sinfulness. And they say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Promoting fleshliness, undermining the return of Christ. Here's the false doctrine. Jesus isn't coming back to get His church, obviously. It's taken too long. This is, we must have got that wrong. And so Paul begins denouncing this pursuit of godliness, of denying marriage and and certain foods and thinking you're really godly. And he says, this isn't a surprise. Jesus has already talked about it. Peter's already talked about it. The Holy Spirit's made it clear all over the place. And this is going to be the trend. And it's just going to get worse as we get closer to the end. This is not the way to godliness. And so Paul is really hard on this group. And for those who think it, he was too hard, you know, is this really that bad? Is it that bad to have experiences? Is it that bad to think that God's so holy we can't possibly understand him? Is it that bad to do all those kinds of things? Well, Paul's really hard on that group. So if you, he basically says, you've got a problem with that. Take it up with Jesus because he's the one who said to watch out for this type of trend. Now, Timothy also understood that the Spirit was talking about present Ephesus because the Ephesian believers were conscious of living in the last days. They understood where they were. I think like most, uh, most evangelical modern churches, understand where they are on the timeline. They should be aware of how far down the timeline of the last days that we are. And we've said before, the last days began when Christ came in His incarnation. And the Word of God has over a thousand prophecies, and more than 50% have already been fulfilled, and some in the same verses and in the same chapters of, of books. They've already occurred, and we're waiting for the rest of that to occur. So Timothy knew he was in the last days. How much more should the church know it now? Because when Israel became a nation and fulfilled Ezekiel 37, the last days clock began ticking down, and Matthew 24, 32 through 35 seems to indicate that the generation that saw that happen will also see the rapture of the church. So once that clock begins ticking, the rapture of the church is very close. So needless to say, the church should understand even more clearly than the Ephesian church, that the latter days are upon us. Now let's look back, if you would, at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says, it's very clear, 
In the latter times, some will fall away. So we know we're in the last days. Let's look at the rest of that. Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, the key to the passage appears to be the simple phrase in verse 1. Some will fall away from the faith. That's the main thing. I think that's the emphasis here as we move into this section. And the rest of the passage, mark this, just describes the environment or the situation or the conditions of the falling away. Right? There's going to be falling away that's going to occur. Here it's going to describe some of those conditions or situations or environments in which that's going to happen. Now, falling away from the faith is nothing new. It happens today. And maybe you've watched it happen to someone that you know or love or in your family. Uh, maybe it's happening to you and you haven't realized it yet. These series of messages hopefully can help you identify those markers in your life. It happened in the history of Israel. With everyone from kings on down to peasants, there's always people who will understand intellectually who will behave externally according to the revelation of God, but who have no heart for it. And there are a ton of examples, but one of these, this helps the Bible come alive for me, but one of these is King Joash from 2 Chronicles 24. He had a good high priest by the name of Jehoiada who led the nation very well. And 2 Chronicles 24.2 says this, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? He did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. We know he rebuilt and restored the temple. We know he took in money to make sure things were restored. After a terrible section of Israel and especially Judah's history where wicked people were ruling and the temple was defiled. And so he seems to have some good intentions. Then you get to 2 Chronicles 24, 15, and we see this. Now, when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. So the priest that was mentoring Joash passed away. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because they had done well in Israel and to God and his house. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. Now, you can already hear ominous music playing. This doesn't sound good. This is going to be another influence, and it's not going to be for the best. And look at verse 18. They abandoned the house of the Lord. So there's always somebody in the wings that doesn't think that's what spiritual things should be, be done. And, and they waited uh, until, until Jehoiada passed away. And then they come, and they talk the king into this. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for their guilt. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, though they testified against them, they would not listen. So the Lord, even watching this falling away, sent more prophets and said, hey, come back, come back. This is the wrong way to go. The Lord's gracious that way. And he'll do that for you too. When he sees you falling away, people will speak into your life. And it might be somebody that you just thought, man, I wish they'd just mind their own business. I, I wish they'd stop getting up into my business. I, I, you know, I'm spiritual. I'm doing fine. That's what people who are falling away always say, right? They, they don't think they're not spiritual. They think they are spiritual. And you've got the problem, not them. So God sends out these, these prophets and they come. And then verse 20, it says this. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. So here's, here's the son of the priest that's passed away has come. And the Lord's carrying him along. He's going to say some words. And he stood above the people and he said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you've forsaken the Lord, he's also forsaken you. So the same Joash, who seemed so committed to Judah and the temple, had fallen away so far, if you read the rest of this passage, you're going to find 
He had this guy, Zechariah, stoned to death for saying that. That's quite a disparity between where you started and where you ended, right? But it's, it's incremental. It's not like you automatically jump from there to here. It's over time, see? The heart was never in it. You were doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. And you had a mentor, and they were helping you. As soon as the mentor passes away, you're moving. The dial's moving. And all of a sudden, you get some other advice, right? And you're carried along in deception. And next thing you know, you're all the way over here. And here's, this, here's, here's Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, who's giving solid advice to the, to the king and to the people who are under him. And what, is, what does Joash do? He puts him to death. And so the Lord sent judgment on Joash because he'd fallen away. He ended up being murdered by his own people. He was not buried with the kings of Israel. And so a very sad ending, see? He started well, but he fell away. And and that story, of course, is repeated over and over. We could read tons of those stories. Even back in Numbers 14, when after seeing the hand of the Lord helping them, bringing them through to the promised land, delivering them from Egypt, and all of those things, they come into the land and they get ready to spy it out, okay? It didn't take long to get there. They get ready to spy it out, but... All but two bring back a report born out of fear and a lack of faith. And Moses says in in, in Numbers chapter 14, and these are people who saw the Lord's deliverance. These are the people who would consider themselves among those who believe the Lord, okay? And they get this chance. The Lord says, I'm bringing you to the promised land. Here it is. Go spy it out. And he wants them to come back and say, this is a great land you've given us. But all but two come back and say, we can't do this. The people are too big. This, This is a death sentence. And they get really reproved by Moses, but they say, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll go ahead, we'll go in. And Moses says this, why are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up or you'll be struck down before your enemies for the Lord is not among you. And all these things deal with falling away in one form or another. You were at one part, but not with your heart, and you've moved away from that. And the passage we are familiar with concerning this condition, certainly in the New Testament, is from Hebrews chapter 6, one we studied a number of, maybe about six months ago, it's one that's very, very sad, but it should also cause us to have some awareness of what's going on around us and what perhaps is going on even in the sanctuary right now. For in the case of those who've been once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good work of God, the word of God and powers of the age to come and mark it, then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. So what's the scenario? People who are among those who consider themselves the redeemed, they've seen what's happened, the Holy Spirit's worked, and they've watched what's going on. They understand that salvation is true. They understand the work is going on by the Holy Spirit inside the church. They've been t- partakers of that. They've been enlightened. They understand what the Word of God says, and then they fall away. It's, impo- it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? They were never there with their heart. They were only there with their actions. And nobody really knew what was going on. They may be sitting in sermon after sermon and they're just you know, affirming. They stand up and raise their hands and they can sing uh, you know, songs to the Lord and whatever. They look like they're part of the assembly. Problem is the heart's not there. They're just doing it, going through the motions. But at some point, it's going to come to a head. And they're just going to fall away. And next thing you don't see them anymore. Maybe this is a, a child that you raised. Maybe it's somebody that you know, part of your family, whatever it is. And they fall away. And then it says, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why is that? Because there's no new information. They've already heard everything, see? They've had the whole salvation thing explained to them over and over again. They understand what holiness is supposed to look like. They understand how they're supposed to walk with the Lord and not be ashamed by rightly dividing the word of truth. They understand it's a real deal. They've even seen the real deal. 
And so there's nothing now that you can say to them that's going to now renew them to repentance because all of it is the same. It's the same call. And then he goes on to say, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. It's not, they're not going to do it, see. They're not going to all of a sudden understand the crucifixion on their behalf. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it brings forth vegetation useful to those who, for whose sake it was also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. And that's the back end of it, see. Over time, true repentance, which led to true salvation, produces good fruit over time. It might take you a while to get started. It might be just a couple of shriveled fruit here and there, and all of a sudden, you begin to do well, see. But those who are sitting there who their heart is not there, they're not bearing fruit, bearing thorns. Might not see it at first, see. Why, as parents, we have to address the heart of the child, as we saw last week, and making sure that we're, we are in the Word with them all the time, and we're leading them that way, and we're disciplining them as we should, and bringing them unto, uh, as we should, a spanking, and the things that require are required to put a child in the way that he should go. And we want to address the heart of the child, and we want to make sure it's uh, it before them in the morning and in the evening and when they walk in the way, and all this, these kinds of things. Because we want to see that little child move into a right relationship with the Lord and bear the kind of fruit that they need to bear. And again, in Matthew 24, dealing with the latter days, very similar phrasing, at that time many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold, but not everyone, see, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So there are false professions. There are people who, whose heart is not there. You can see it as an adult. They, you know, they, they'll miss church and they don't care and they'll, they'll pick, they'll pick uh, and do it often as they can and everything's a reason for not being there. So it's always subtle influences and it's always small movements, but over time, pretty soon you're standing in a room that you don't recognize the color, see. Or a lack of time in the Word over time. And true worship and faithful doctrine is going to be replaced with legalism or reason, or mysticism, or sign gifts, or asceticism, or any number of things that can be propagated by false teachers. And all this discussion simply refers to a single word. The Spirit explicitly says, in latter times, this is the word, will fall away. It's from the Greek verb apostate. That's the word. Apostate. The ESV grabs the correct tense, which is future. And the voice is middle, meaning they're going to act on it themselves. They, they participate in this falling away. And the mood is the mood of reality, of assertion. So an apostate is someone who departs and becomes faithless. And as a footnote, we're going to look at this later, but from their perspective, as I said just a minute ago, they're still faithful. right? From, from their perspective, they're still spiritual. If they evaluate themselves and then you talk to them, they'll tell you they're spiritual and they're still faithful. You just under, don't understand the relationship that they have. They would evaluate themselves as faithful, except that being faithful isn't subjective, is it? They still think they're faithful, maybe more faithful than you at this point in their life. And that's what they'll tell you. They're described as departing from or falling away from the faith that they knew. And that's the second part of our understanding of, of faith and false faith and false teaching, just obviously. Number two, the departure from sound doctrine is called a falling away. 
from what you once affirmed to be the truth. That's a reflection of the true heart. From the faith they understood, the faith which they previously affirmed. This is important to understand. An apostate is not someone who never knew the truth, but someone who knew, not someone who never believed. This is someone who on the outside believed, not someone who never believed. Someone who once behaved according to the revelation of God, but because the heart was never in it, because they never really knew God, they were able to be lured away by what in reality were the seductive, insidious voices of the demons behind false prophets and false forms of religion, Paul says. They were led, it says at the end of verse 1, by paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And that's number three as we think about false forms of religion and false beliefs and all that source. No matter which human is saying them or modeling them, all find their source with demons. And I know you know this because we've looked at this in the past. But false religion and false beliefs and all idols spread demon doctrine and are all animated by demon spirits. All of them. Paul told the church in Corinth, and I'm going to spend some time here because I think this is the foundation of understanding really what's going on around you among people who you would consider believers, among people in the world themselves, okay? People who used to be in the church and now aren't, people who are in grievous error and continue to stay there and don't seem to have any problem with it. This is the source of all that. Paul told the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11:3, he said this, I'm afraid that... As the serpent deceived Eve. Remember, deception is you think you're right, but you're not. It's not that you're willingly turning away in rebellion. You think you now have the right information and you're doing the right thing. That's deception. Okay? The serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Your minds, he said, I'm afraid, will be led astray from the simplicity and purity. Here it is, devotion to Christ. It's all about that. Holiness is devotion to Christ. Holiness is understanding what Christ has done and holding on to that as your sole provision. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you've not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And you remember, as we looked at this, how this false view of Jesus, a Jesus that makes us feel good about ourselves, a Jesus that only includes the fun things and the, and the understandable things and the kind things and the things that make us feel good, see? And a different spirit, that's not the Holy Spirit now, it's a different spirit empowering things that can go on inside the church. And a gospel that doesn't save, one that's watered down, one that's custom tailored to you. It doesn't get rid of the things you want to hang on to, but it's your safety net. It was preached by men, obviously, and Paul was talking about men. But here's what he says in verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. The men who teach this are false apostles, deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ just like the source of their information does Satan and the demons. So Satan and his angels disguise themselves as angels of light and become suppliers of religion and suppliers of false doctrine and suppliers of foolish behavior and they animate it just enough to keep people coming back. 
When people worship a tree or they worship a mountain or they worship something made by hands, listen, that's no God at all. And we're going to see in just a minute, those are all animated by demons. And what we understand about that is this. In God's provision for those who have willingly turned away from the truth, Romans chapter 1, that vacuum doesn't stay a vacuum very long. It sucks in all the things that the world is going to push in there. And what he does in his sovereignty is he allows people who willingly be deceived to be deceived just a little bit each time they worship this thing that has no power. The demon has just enough. He can animate it just enough. You pray to the tree and then something happens. You're like, oh man, this will really be effective. You, you pray to the mountain, you pray to the God of nature, whatever it is, and just enough happens connected to your false belief that it just keeps you coming back because you've been deceived. And they call them into worship here or there and this system or that system, this system of belief or this idol or that idol. But behind the system and behind the idols are demons because idols are more than just carved images. And false beliefs and false religions are more than just a system of beliefs among a whole bunch of other ones. They're the product of demons from the start. And this is a very, very important concept. And just to firm this up, in fact, if you go to the Old Testament, Moses is calling the nation to obedience. And he tells them as they move in amongst the nations that are already in the land, he says this, they made him jealous with strange gods. Their people right away as they moved into the land made him jealous with abominations. They provoked him to anger. Mark it. They sacrificed to demons who were not God. So they thought they were just participating in this general worship of whatever it was the people in the land were worshiping. But what does Moses make clear? They were worshiping demons, not God, to gods whom they've not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. These are, these are ones that didn't even enter into the minds of those who came before you. They weren't worried about these because they weren't gods at all, but they are demons. And Moses says, you provoke the Lord to anger. And whatever they sacrificed to idols, they were just actually sacrificing to demons. And again, they animate it just enough to keep people coming back. You move up to Psalm chapter 106 and verse 35, you see much the same thing. But they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. And they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. That makes sense, doesn't it? Who's going, to be, who's going to be drawn into the sacrifice to Shemosh of your own child? I don't know. Who's going to be drawn in to sacrifice your own child to expediency? I don't know. Hundreds of thousands of people every day in this nation. Who thinks it's not a human? Only those deceived by demons. Who John 10.10 10 says comes to steal and kill and destroy. You see, it's still connected to us. It's still doctrines of demons. We just whitewash it and polish it and call it choice in my own body and whatever it is. See, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons and shed innocent blood and the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood and they still thought they were spiritual. Just like people do today. They still think they were godly. They still think they're spiritual. They'll think they're doing what they should do, but they've been deceived, haven't they? And back in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, he says, Now, uh, no, I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. He's talking about freedom, and he was talking about what's going on uh, in, in the temple, and what's, what's going on with the Gentiles 
in, in the in the worship of false of uh, uh, false religions. And and uh, you remember this whole story. You know they would bring uh, some animal in to sacrifice, and then of course they're sacrificing it to something that's not a god, right? And so they go out the back, and they have this little shop out back there, and they're selling all these meat cuts, and people come through and like, wow, that's really cheap. That steak's like half price than it was, you know, at the other market. That's because it was sacrificed to a demon. And and the Lord says in this passage, He goes, listen, it's not really sacrificed. They're nothing to you. You're free, right? You can go and buy it, but I don't want you to become sharers and demons. When people watch you do it, they're like, why are you eating something with sacrifice to a false god? And so Paul says to them, he says, I don't want you to become sharers and demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's what it appeared to be, see, for those who were doing it. But the reality of those who were Gentiles and unredeemed, that's who they were sacrificing to. False religious systems and beliefs and all idols are simply focal points for demon activity, for lying and seducing spirits to purvey, market the doctrines of hell. And they don't care what you believe as long as you don't believe the truth. They don't care what it is that deceives you as long as you're not following the truth, as long as you're distracted from sound doctrine. And we're spending a little time here because it's so important to firm this up in our understanding because this biblical perspective helps us to have wisdom and comprehend what we see in false religions and forms of religious practices and beliefs. In other words, how are they doing these things if the Lord isn't in them? When we look at these uh, churches that practice false doctrine, why, are, why do they seem so empowered if the Lord isn't in them? Well, it's a different spirit, isn't it? Empowering it. People come all the time from, from charismatic churches and come and, and have, have a meeting with me and say, I could never do those things. I didn't understand why I couldn't do those things. And they're very disillusioned. That's when they exit the charismatic movement because they're not doing any of that. So how are they doing it? And my next question is, do you really want to know this? Because it appears to be godly, doesn't it? And it appears that the Lord's moving in this miraculous way. And you want to see God do something in the church. And what's actually happening is, this is a different spirit. This isn't the one you received. That's who's empowering all this, see. So you got to keep that straight. All of those types of deceptions are deceptions that come from, de from deceiving spirits. There's always the question from disillusioned people. And, and where we are right now in our study explains it as simply as it can be explained. We shouldn't imagine for a moment that false teaching and false religions and practices and cults and animism and syncretism or an idol or the world's systems and attractions are simply what they appear to be on the surface. A false religion is not simply the collection of ideas that appear to be without understanding, some random belief set. They're not that. And the insidious nature of the world and the vices the world offers, listen, you need to understand, why is it so attractive to you? You need to understand this, beloved. Okay, we have to be wise in these things. That should be a big red flag, why it's so attractive. The attractions of our culture, they're not just socially constructed. They're not just the way that we do what we do. And that vary from age to age. Behind all of those things is the dynamic influence of fallen angels and satanic systems of spirits. And they are through these means, seducing people away from truth into falsehood. You can't come away from that verse 1 with anything except that, okay? That is precisely how the world works. Seducing people away from the saving gospel to an eternal hell, to apostasy, that's demon seduction. False religions, worship of demons, animism, worship of demons, false religious practices, 
are from a different spirit, a fallen one, 2 Corinthians 11. And false teachers are demon agents, and that is clear in the Word of God, and very clear, I think, to us as we understand Paul says, the Spirit explicitly says, this is precisely what's going to happen, and this is how it'll be as you get closer to the end, more and more so. So Scripture clearly reveals, whether you're looking at the history of Israel, or whether you're dealing with the church, both histories affirm that there's always been a battleground between God and His truth, and Satan and the fallen angels and their lies. There's always been a battleground between those two. Always. It continues to go on. It gets more intense as we get towards the end. The demons aren't confused about whether Jesus is coming back or not, okay? They know precisely that's what's going to happen. Satan's not confused about whether or not the church is going to be raptured and there's going to be a time of tribulation. He's not confused about that at all. It's only people who are confused, Only people who are deceived and live as if it's not going to happen or walk through life as if these things the world offers aren't insidious and given by those who want to lead you astray. See, these are so important, and this is so important to understand. Both histories affirm there's always been the battleground and particularly applicable to us in our time since the completion of the New Testament and the establishment of the church age, which we're still in. The fight goes on constantly. God calls to people through the truth, and Satan calls to them with his demons and tries to lure people away from truth with his lies. And it can be a very gradual and slow movement, and you don't realize you've moved, and all of a sudden you look up, and things are a lot different in your life. And someone may come up to you and say, you know, this is really dangerous where you are right now, and you will still evaluate yourself as spiritual, and you'll be mad because they say something even though they're saying it because they love you and they see you drifting away and they see the things that you're allowing in your life and they know where all that leads, see? And this is so important, beloved, to understand where all this comes from. And if or when God grants realization, the significant change from where you were can really be shocking. But that's our prayer, that the Lord will allow you to see that and will allow us to see and be wise in how we evaluate things that are going on around us. And we're out of time, so we're going to bow in prayer and uh, be dismissed. Thank you for being with us today. Lord, we thank you today for our time to be in your word. We thank you for your clear warning. We didn't get to heaven and then you say, oh yeah, well, there's a really big battle going on. I didn't want to worry you about it. I was concerned that you would be overly concerned, so I didn't tell you what was going on. Instead, Lord, very clear terms from Jesus' own words while he was on earth to the apostles teaching all throughout the New Testament, and particularly here in our evaluation as we look at Paul's a letter to Timothy in Ephesus. We understand that this is what it's going to look like. And we're going to see more of this as we get deeper into the book. We're going to see more things that are trademarks of this world's system around us, this last days types of things. So you give us this so you, we can be wise, so that we can not be foolish and understand what your, your will is, so that we can study and show ourselves approved unto you, Father, as a workman, who doesn't need to be ashamed because we can rightly divide the word of truth. Lord, I pray that that will be the case as we move out today and we go into uh, the things that you've assigned for us for this week. We thank you for them. We thank you for the provision of all of that. We thank you for the blessing of having employment if we have it and and have uh, an opportunity to be a light. I pray that we'll be that kind of light and help us to go out and, and love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is most most clearly exhibited in our obedience to what your word says. And our neighbor is ourself, which is probably one of the first bridges we'll have to sharing the actual gospel. 
and also that we might go out and we might, as you've told us, give the gospel to every creature, teaching them to observe all that you've commanded us, and you're with us always. But as we do that, Father, I pray that we'll be aware of the deception that's going on. This is not just some random set of beliefs that somebody made up. Jehovah's Witness that come to our door, they're not just one belief set out of a number of them that just kind of uh, popped up. These are doctrines of demons, and those who are per, uh, purveying them have been deceived. So most of all, that draws us to our knees. It reminds us that we have no power over any of these things apart from what you will do. It's your word, though, that's clear, and you've given it to us, able to cast down strongholds and take captive every thought, but it's all from your word, and I pray that we'll be clear and understand it. We'll start our day in it each day. We need it. Help us to understand how desperately we do, and we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake, and all God's people said, amen.